Welcome to Measured Justice, where we offer expert perspectives on important criminal justice issues in our communities and in our country. We believe knowledge is the most important tool we have to address the problems confronting the criminal justice system. At Measured Justice, we share expert research and analysis to help bridge the gap between what we know about criminal justice and what we actually do on the ground. We invite the smartest minds to the table to discuss the challenges of crime and punishment in America today. So that everyone walks away better informed. Join us for Measured Justice. Ashley Otto, Director of the Academy for Justice at Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law, and you're listening to Measured Justice. This episode on Free But Not Free will be introduced by my guest co-host today, Felina Beattie, Faculty Deputy Director of the Academy for Justice and Professor of Law at Arizona State University, Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. Thank you, Ashley. Uh, The Academy for Justice is a criminal justice center at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. The center aims to connect research with policy reform and to share expert voices. Today on this podcast episode, we're talking about free but not free. We're fortunate to be joined today by Lindsay Herf, Executive Director of the Arizona Justice Project. Karen Smith, Senior Litigation Counsel for the Arizona Justice Project, and Chris Tapp, who served 20 years in prison in Idaho for a crime he did not commit. He was released after some charges were dismissed and ultimately fully exonerated. You can find their full biographies on academyforjustice.org. Thank you all for joining us today. Uh, Ms. Herf, what made you interested in uh, post-conviction work and pursuing post-conviction work. Uh, And I wonder if you can tell us a bit about your role as the executive director of the Arizona Justice Project. Sure. Thank you for having us and in doing this podcast today. Um, I became interested in post-conviction work when I was a law student and was one of the 12 law students in the California Innocence Project based out of San Diego. I did not know very much about wrongful convictions and in law school was learning about how the criminal justice system worked. During my year in CIP, one of the clients whose case had been worked on for many years went to a full evidentiary hearing and he was ultimately exonerated. And learning about what went wrong in his original conviction and the on the ground investigation, talking to witnesses and 20 years later, pulling out the truth of what happened and presenting that to a court and and leading to an innocent man's ultimate freedom kind of rocked my world. And I graduated from law school in 2008 and was lucky enough to return to my home state here in Arizona and join the Arizona Justice Project, which at that time, had just received a federal grant to look back at homicide and sex assault cases in the state of Arizona, where there was a claim of innocence and DNA evidence could be used to prove their innocence. Um, And and specifically, we're looking at cases where DNA testing perhaps did not exist 
at the time of trial or had greatly advanced. And so it was a, you know, a forensic tool that, that could be utilized and applied. And during that project, we, we did achieve an exoneration. And um, since then, you know, at that time, when I joined the Arizona Justice Project, there were, there were two lawyers and we had a part-time executive director. The project has since grown. We now have nine individuals working at the Arizona Justice Project. And my role as the executive director includes doing some legal work and some casework. Um, Karen, our, our senior litigation counsel, who's here with me today, will we'll talk about her role because she does a lot of the case work from investigation into the litigation. And we, we do a number of other things now. We, we are a little more involved in policy work um, and trying to get better laws in Arizona that everything from trying to accomplish a law that would provide compensation to exonerees to having best practices for eyewitness identification procedures, um, but various things that have been shown in, in the innocence movement over the last 30 years of aspects of our system that need to be improved upon. And Arizona is, is kind of one of the last states that's taken any, any measures to do so. So I oversee some of our policy work. We, as a nonprofit, we have to do a lot of fundraising to exist. So a lot of my job is also involved with fundraising and grant applications and, and that sort of work. Um, and, and we have started, we are one of the only organizations in the Innocence Network. There's a couple others, but we also have a part-time social work director. And so we have a partnership with the ASU School of Social Work. And one of our former social work interns is now our social work director that really helps with re-entry assistance for our clients, preparing them for release and assisting them upon release. Thank you so much, Ms. Herb. You mentioned uh, Karen Ms. Smith and that she really dives into the casework and the litigation. Uh, I know you were a federal, former federal public defender. I was a former public defender myself, so I can relate. Can you just tell us a little bit about how is post-conviction innocence work different, similar to your time as a public defender? Sure. Uh, thank you so much for having us here today, as Lindsay said. So my role as a federal public defender was a little bit different than yours and what most public defenders, I think we think of do. I did all post-conviction work as a public defender. So I did um, federal habeas corpus work on behalf of people on death row um, here in Arizona and in Nevada. So I was only doing post-conviction work and only representing people on death row. So different than what I do now in that, you know, most of my clients were likely guilty of the crimes they were convicted of. We are mostly litigating issues related to sentencing claims um, in the litigation that I was doing. And, you know, it, here at the Justice Project, as Lindsay said, we are a small nonprofit and we can only take on a fraction of the cases of people who write into us. So, you know, at the Public Defender's Office, cases are assigned, they kind of automatically come into the office and we have an obligation and a duty and a constitutional duty to you know, provide representation and take them on. Whereas here at the Justice Project, we have a pretty elaborate intake and screening process just because we have limited resources and can only get involved in those cases where we think we're able to make the most difference and really make an impact um, in a client's case. But I will say that while I was at uh, my job there, I did have two clients who were on death row for crimes that they didn't commit. 
One of them was freed after serving 29 years on death row in Nevada through a deal similar to what Chris was talking about. And that is how I got to know the Justice Project. As Lindsay just mentioned, the Justice Project does have a reentry team and just has resources that also aren't often available in um, the public defender world in terms of helping people adjust back to the community after um, they might have been involved in the criminal justice system. So that was part of how I transitioned into this role. Mr. Tapp, uh, thanks for joining us today. It's good to have you here. You spent 20 years uh, behind bars for a crime, for punishment for a crime that you didn't commit. Uh, And that's horrible and happens, I think, more often than we talk about and than we acknowledge. Uh, And I wonder, after having gone through that, um, what do you think we should change about the criminal legal system? The criminals, thank you for having me. And the criminal system is broke. I mean, let's be honest, as being a wrongfully convicted individual and been around now, you know, the hundreds upon hundreds of wrongly, you know, convicted individuals that it's truly broke and things need to change, you know, from police interrogations to the prosecutor misconducts that happen in cases all the time, you know, withholding evidence, you know, falsifying, you know, evidence, witness, mis, mis uh, identifications, stuff like that. There is so much in the system that needs to be changed. Even jailhouse informants are, are one of the biggest things in the world that needs to be changed. I, I mean, I've spoken at a lot of colleges over the years, and that's the one thing I try to teach, teach to all the students is if you feel in your heart that something doesn't smell right or doesn't look right, then continue on looking for the real truth, because that's the only way it's ever going to happen. And that's what really needs to be done is is people need to actually look at the real truth and examine every avenue and every option that there is out there. Thank you, Chris. So what is your sense? Why is it so difficult to request and obtain post-conviction relief like for for Mr. Tapp? Are there any steps that the Arizona Justice Project is taking and others, if you know, um, to make this process easier for those that are incarcerated? Thank you. Uh, So... The way that our criminal justice system is set up, there is this emphasis on finality. Um, And the system thinks that once somebody has been convicted, either via a guilty plea or a trial, and once they're, you know, whatever the direct appeals after that, once that process finishes, we consider a conviction final um, under our criminal law. And the law is set up to make it really hard uh, to fix any problems with that process once we get through that you know, that process. So the way that both Arizona's post-conviction rules are set up, many other states' post-conviction rules, as well as the federal system for um, habeas review, it's really designed to be an uphill battle that is, you know, in the legislative intent behind all of these systems. So everyone is really facing um, a lot of obstacles just to get into the court in the first place. There are a lot of procedural bars, meaning that your claim won't even be heard on the merits um, by a court. Uh, The court will find some reason why you can't even raise this claim and have the actual evidence heard by a judge. Um, Because, you know, maybe your previous lawyer didn't raise the claim or maybe a court already considered it and denied relief, but now you have new evidence that that either you or your new attorney has uncovered. But the way that the law is written, um, a lot of times 
you can't even get those claims heard by a new court. So, you know, and unfortunately, the both the Arizona courts and the federal courts have been interpreting our rules and our statutes more narrowly in recently in recent years, which makes it even more difficult kind of to overcome those hurdles. So in terms of, you know, what can we do to try to make it easier for people? The Arizona Justice Project has, you know, tried to engage with the legislature and with um, rulemaking bodies to try to see if there's ways that we can um, amend our rules of criminal procedure, perhaps to make, you know, for example, one issue that we have tried to work on and that some other states have adopted is, you know, if both the defendant and the prosecutor agree that an injustice happened. Um, you know, creating a framework to get back into court. We don't currently have that in Arizona. There's not an automatic way to review a conviction, um, even if both parties agree that it should be reviewed. Um, and other states have adopted frameworks like that. So that, you know, is something that we hope to see in the future here in Arizona. But yeah, as I said, you know, relief in the courts is, is very hard, which is part of what results in these situations that we're talking about today. Well, and the Supreme Court just ruled in a Arizona case, limiting even more access to federal courts, uh, even when you have evidence of your wrongful conviction. Uh, so the work you're doing in Arizona is is so crucial. I don't know if you want me to make any comments, but that is my case from my last job. I would love to hear your thoughts on that. I had no idea, Karen. I had no idea. Barry Jones was my client when I was a federal public defender. So um, yes, the U.S. Supreme Court recently ruled further limiting the availability of both innocent and non-innocent um, defendants to have claims reviewed on the merits in federal court. There's actually an Arizona Justice Project case from 2012 um, that created this very narrow inroad to the federal system. Um, if someone could show that both their trial lawyer and their first uh, post-conviction lawyer in their first round of state post-conviction review were both constitutionally ineffective, then you got a shot to bring those claims in federal court. And this opened the door for innocent people to have their claims reviewed on the merits in federal court, including a case that I worked on when I was at the Federal Public Defender's Office, uh, Mr. Barry Jones, who was convicted of a crime that he didn't commit um, almost 27 years ago. So we had a hearing in federal court where we presented evidence for seven days. We had expert testimony from doctors, um, the biomechanics experts, trial counsel, post-conviction counsel. Um, and the judge agreed that Mr. Jones did not have a fair trial because his client, his original trial lawyer failed to investigate obvious things that should have been investigated at the time of trial. Um, and that if the lawyer had investigated these things and had presented the evidence, it likely would have made a difference in his trial. Unfortunately, um, the state appealed um, and it made it all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And recently, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court held that um, it was entirely improper for that hearing to ever have happened in the first place. And that this exception that was created in 2012 um, to allow these claims of ineffective assistance to be heard has kind of been shrunk uh, in a way that no longer allows you to present that evidence in this forum. So unfortunately, um, Mr. Jones is still on death row and other potentially wrongfully convicted people no longer have that avenue available to them. 
And again, for Mr. Jones, we're talking about affirmative evidence that he was wrongfully convicted and that now a federal court cannot hear that evidence. That's correct. Um, in federal court, evidence was presented from medical experts. The most compelling evidence to the judge who heard the evidence was that the timing of the injury, um, which was the state's whole case at trial, was that the child was injured and eventually died, but that the injuries were caused in this narrow window of time where she was in Mr. Jones' care. And that was, you know, the whole basis for the conviction at trial. And the medical experts that testified um, in federal court disproved that theory and said that the injuries had to have occurred much earlier, uh, likely days earlier when there was absolutely no evidence um, that the child was with Mr. Jones. Another reason why the work of the Arizona Justice Project is so important on many levels, on the court level, and then as you talked about the policy work that you've been doing as well. Ms. Herf, I'm wondering, I want to look at the Arizona Justice Project's mission statement, and it says it is to seek justice for the innocent, the wrongfully imprisoned, and those who have suffered manifest injustice under Arizona's criminal justice system. So for the Arizona Justice Project, what constitutes a manifest injustice? And how does your mission statement make you a bit different from other uh, innocence organizations? So the work of the Arizona Justice Project has always been to try to prove someone's innocence and exonerate them, or to correct, as you said, a manifest injustice. And that has looked like various um, in, you know, things over the years. And I, I think the co most concrete example I can give is, you know, we work on sentencing fairness issues as well. And so that has included juveniles who had been, you know, sentenced to natural life and, you know, have, have helped assist them to preserve and raise claims after 10 years ago when the Miller versus Alabama decision came down. It included the very first subset of cases the project took on, which were uh, individuals who had been beaten and abused physically, sexually, emotionally by their partners, and then were engaged in um, the ultimate death of their partners. But that evidence of abuse was not able to come out at trial because Arizona was one of the last states to adopt um, a law that allowed kind of a battered women's syndrome defense and evidence to be presented. And once it adopted it, our then governor said, you know, if there are instances of, of men and women who are in prison, who have meritorious evidence that they were victims of abuse, they can apply for clemency. And so the first kind of subset of manifest injustice cases the project took on were a handful of, of women who had been in prison for you know 20 some years and had documented you know histories of of being abused by you know by their spouses um and, and they were they were granted clemency and freed um so so the project has taken on as different issues in fairness um in convictions and sentencing have come up over the last this project has been in existence for 23 years we have taken on various cases. And part of the reason why we have done it is that there is no other agency in Arizona to take these cases on. We are a nonprofit, but you know, people in prison when there is a change in the law or when there is, you know, something dramatic that happens in their case, 
they can write into the public defender's office, but they'll receive a response that says, you know, our representation of you has concluded. And so from the get go, this organization, you know, was formed to be a place where people in prison can write into. And, you know, kind of the genesis of the project really were, was advancements in science, advancements in our understandings of fire science and markers or indicators showing an intentionally set fire arson or not, or, you know, previous beliefs that have, you know, with advancements in fire science and understanding been proven to be false and, and misapplied and, you know, incorrectly relied upon with, you know, the obvious advancements in science with DNA testing technology in the 90s. Um, so, so this project was originally created to be a place where people in prison could write into if they had been convicted of something and there had been developments in, you know, the evidence that was used to convict them that shows it's no longer, you know, valid and true and either no crime occurred or they weren't the person to, to have committed that crime. And when this project was formed, you know, we, we knew that there were innocent people. We also knew that there were people who had been wrongly imprisoned um, and unjustly convicted. And maybe there wasn't that specific, you know, uh, silver bullet piece of evidence like DNA can sometimes be, but maybe later on, we uncover various layers of prosecutorial misconduct. And as Mr. Tapp said, you know, Brady violations where the prosecuting agency did not give the defense, you know, information that was exculpatory to the defendant or showed, you know, evidence that somebody had lied or that there was information about another suspect who had never been pursued and should have been. Um, and so, you know, sometimes there are innocence cases where the evidence used to overturn the conviction is evidence of misconduct, but it completely, you know, dismantles the prosecution's original case. And there is no case after that when the false evidence has been discredited and the, the testimony, you know, from key witnesses has been shown to be, you know, made up. Um, so our project, you know, has always been the Arizona Justice Project, and we've handled a variety of criminal injustice cases and and have had, you know, some success for as small of an organization as we have been, you know, it does take a village and we partner with law firms and we partner with, you know, others in the community and, and we've had had some great success for, for our very deserving clients. And so, um, Ms. Smith, in turning to uh, Mr. Tapp's case a bit, I, I have some questions, just kind of want some context and background from you. So in Mr. Tapp's case, my understanding is that a judge, instead of allowing a judge to rule on the motion for post-conviction relief, the district attorney in Idaho reached an agreement with Mr. Tapps that vacated his conviction and reduced the time, his sentence to time served. Can you give us a bit of context? Like why do these types of deals come up and what are the various factors that go into deciding whether a client would, would want to accept such a deal? Sure. So, you know, usually a prosecutor won't offer such a deal until you have made a substantial claim, right? Um, there is some evidence that the prosecutor is worried would result in a conviction being overturned. So, you know, in all honesty, I think sometimes they get scared and they don't they don't want to lose. You know, um, hopefully, it's not just that they want to protect a wrongful conviction, but that they, you know, still have some belief that the conviction should stand. But often in these cases, at least in the cases that I've worked on, 
prosecutors are very hesitant to just agree to dismiss charges altogether, whether it is, you know, because they still believe that a crime was committed by this individual or whether they don't want to expose um, their office or their county to liability in the future. But for many reasons, it may be preferable to them to offer a resolution rather than to have a court rule that a conviction was wrong. And from the perspective of our clients, you know, most of them have been in prison for years, if not decades. Um, many of them have family members at home who are getting older. They have kids who are growing up who they haven't been able to spend time with. Um, I have talked to a couple people who their moms were getting old, were sick, and they just really wanted to be home with their moms before it was too late. Um, and the choice that they're presented is, you know, take this deal and go home today or face a retrial or face years more of post-conviction litigation in the court. And the uncertainty, you know, these people already were convicted by a jury of something they didn't do. And there's always a risk that it could happen again. And as much as they have, you know, fought for their freedom for years and years, and as much as that knowledge that they, you know, are innocent and that they are in the right has kept them going for many years and helped them fight, it's really hard to say, I'm going to stay in prison. I'm going to stay away from my family and my loved ones uh, when I'm being offered the chance to walk out the door today. So, you know, for many of our clients, it's a rational decision that they make, um, you know, to decide to walk out the door as soon as possible instead of staying incarcerated. What a difficult choice. And Ms. Herc, I want to turn to you and talk a little bit about this ABA resolution. In, in 2017, the ABA adopted a resolution advising prosecuting agencies to adopt policies against having a practice of these pleas to freedom because the prosecutor should not defend a conviction if the prosecutor believes that the defendant is innocent or was wrongly, wrongfully convicted or that a miscarriage of justice associated with the conviction has occurred. So stopping there, can you dig into these issues a bit? You know, what these pleas to freedom, what kind of issues do they create for the defendant, for the state agency, the original crime victim, the community? Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what kind of issues you're seeing and then what kind of issues um, we should all be made aware of? Yes, I, I'm happy to talk about kind of questions we've had surrounding this issue um, as, as we've had a couple of clients through the Arizona Justice Project who have regained their freedom through these, you know, terms that were, you know, this, we've called it a plea to freedom. Um, and I think Mr. Tapp can talk a lot about, you know, the position he was put in. But, you know, as Karen said, well, first of all, when this type of offer is made by a prosecuting agency, it's very rare and it's it's kind of suspect. I mean, I say it's rare because the criminal justice system, it's an adversarial system. You know, there is one side against the other from the moment of, you know, a person that's being charged with a crime to going to trial. You know, there's the prosecution, there's the defense through the appeals, through the entire process. And by and large, you know, we receive hundreds of requests for help every year. And by the time we get a case here, an individual has been convicted. They've had a direct appeal. They've perhaps had multiple post-conviction motions. And, you know, in all of these cases, 
the state does everything they can to maintain the conviction and to oppose any type of relief based on a constitutional violation or if there is some type of new evidence. And so when you have these rare instances where a prosecuting agency is offering what we're calling a prelative freedom, which occurs when new evidence is presented in the form of a petition for relief, it's called different things in different states, and it's raising, it's advancing claims of wrongful conviction based on new evidence, based on, you know, potentially prosecutorial misconduct, based on advances in science, based on information of, you know, credible information of another suspect. And what the defense is asking for is a court to set a hearing, to flesh all the evidence out, and or to grant relief. And in granting, when I say grant relief, that means overturning the conviction. And what, when prosecution agencies, that's kind of at the point that we have seen in Arizona when these pleas to freedom are offered before a court can make a ruling on the claims and on the evidence, this walk away deal, this plea quote, plea to freedom is sometimes placed on the table. You know, one, I think actually one of the Memphis three said it best, which was, I told him I didn't do it for so many years and they put me in prison. And the moment I say I did it, I, I walked out. And so it's kind of like, what is the logic in in this? Because typically when someone admits to a crime, they're going to prison. They're not being released from it. So that, you know, is already an odd thing. Um, Mr. Taps can talk about the position he's in. But as, as Karen was saying, you know, we can't assure our clients that we are going to win. We can assure them that we have the best experts to present this evidence that, you know, this is our opportunity, but we can't assure our client that a court is gonna rule in our favor. We can't assure our client that even if the court does rule in our favor, that it won't be appealed and a higher court will overturn it. We can't assure our client that the minute that we get a court ruling, they'll be released. They may have to stay in prison for years as the appellate process happens. So there's a lot of unknowns that you have to be honest with your client about um, as to kind of the costs and benefit or the costs and, you know, risks of considering a walkaway plea to freedom type of deal. You know, the benefit to the county attorney or the district attorney or whatever the state agency is, you know, I, I guess a plea to freedom allows them to say that they have maintained this conviction. There's always questions about, is this decision based on potential liability of a civil rights violation suit? If there is evidence in the specific case of misconduct, and, you know, we, I, I think on the defense side, we'll never know if that's a factor in, in various cases. The victims, the original crime victims or their families are also put in a very confusing position where they are being told by the prosecuting agency, we still believe this person is guilty, but we're going to go ahead and make this agreement that they will be released. And, and you know, we hear the story spun in, in various ways. Oh, we won't be able to retry the case. Well, the conviction hasn't been overturned yet. You know, the prosecuting agency is agreeing for the conviction to be overturned. So the matter isn't even in a position of whether or not they're going to be able to retry the case. And so I, I think, you know, I, I feel for, for the victims and the victims' family members when these things have when these pleas to freedom, you know, are effectuated because, you know, often they're being told one thing, but then the action that's being taken kind of demonstrates the opposite. And so it puts them, you know, in a very, I think, confusing position. And then the community, you know, because these are such rare instances, 
because I mean, Chris is a case, Chris's case is one that was very well known, not just, I, I mean, I believe, and not just in Idaho, but across the country, you know, and, and so there are a lot of people that were aware, especially the local community of this wrongful conviction. And so when this plea to freedom is effectuated, I think, I think the community sometimes questions what exactly is going on in the criminal justice system? Is he innocent or is he not? Why are you agreeing for him to be released if, if you're still maintaining you being the government is still maintaining he is guilty? Thank you. Uh, and Mr. Tapp, we definitely want to hear, you know, what are your thoughts having gone through this? Um, what are your thoughts on these pleas to freedom? In my case, you know, exactly where it is, is, you know, when the state offered me the deal, because again, they brought me from prison. We had a hearing the next month in April of 2017. We were going in front of a, a, a district judge and retrying, you know, the question of the Brady violation and everything else. And they brought me a month early and they're like, hey, the first deal they offered me was, uh, hey, we're going to let you go. We'll give you 10 years of probation and we'll let you go home. And I was like, that's not going to work for me because you're just sentencing me back to prison because 10 years of probation is just another prison sentence that everybody's going to fail. So, you know, through mediation and through my attorney's work, they came to us and said, hey, time served and we'll let you go. And that was one of the hardest things to try to fathom because this is my opportunity to go home. You know, I know I'm innocent. I know I'm truly innocent, but you have that brass ring that's coming to you that says, hey, you can walk home tomorrow. And my mother and me, my mother had a bunch of conversations about it. Me and my attorneys had a bunch of conversations about it, but I've lost so much faith in, in, in the justice system that I knew this is my opportunity to go home. So I took a deal, you know, to go home. It wasn't an Alfred plea. It wasn't anything else. They just restructured my sentence because the prosecutor said that they believed that what I admitted to during my interrogations of my false confession was that I served enough time and it was able for me to go home. And that's what it was, was they felt like, hey, you were guilty. The jury found you guilty, but you've done enough time for what you said you did during this crime. And then we're allowed to go home and that would make them happy because, again, they still have the conviction on the case and it's still a win for them. But also, you know, it gives me the opportunity to go home because, again, my mother's getting older. You know, I spent half of my life in prison at this time. So I wanted to have that opportunity to come home and show that I was worth something to myself, to my family and to the rest of the community that, you know, as soon again, you know, it took a little bit of time for them to come around and start supporting you know, me, but I want to come home and show them that I was worth everything that they people's been standing up and fighting for, for the last 10 years of my life that I knew that I were innocent. So now I had the opportunity and that's why I took that deal, but it's hard. You know, in the first couple of years, it was truly hard to wrap my head around that. I was still convicted first degree murder. And, you know, I couldn't get a job at a Walmart. I couldn't get a job, you know, at certain you know places because I couldn't get bonded or insured or anything else. And then, you know, it caused a lot of havoc between, you know, I, I got married. I, I met my wife, you know, it caused a lot of havoc because, you know, because of that conviction. So, you know, the kids, you know, my stepkids were, you know, taken away from us because the father's like, hey, why do I want a convicted murderer around my kids? So you have a lot of things that you have to wrap your head around and know that you're going to have to fight through to get these deals. And when you come home, there's so much more you have to go through. And again, I was lucky enough, you know, that, you know, the, the police department was able to finally do their job correctly. And they actually caught the true perpetrator of this crime. 
And that's what brought me to my exoneration was just them actually finally being able to do their job. So you have firsthand experience of both being released from prison and being able to be freed as well as then being exonerated. Um, And you've talked about this a little bit, but uh, what has been the difference for you in, in being exonerated? You know, that black cloud that, that, so many people have, you know, that, that mis that thought that maybe in the back of their mind, because when you take that deal in the back of their mind that they think maybe you're still guilty of this crime. So again, people look at you a little bit different. You feel differently about yourself because again, you feel like you've let yourself down by still admitting to a certain degree that you're guilty of something that you know, you didn't do. And then, you know, you fast forward for me, it was two years later, you know, and then, bam, I'm sitting inside the same courtroom that they released me in 17, you know, in 2019, that, the you know, the judge says, hey, uh, and the prosecutor, you know, everybody's saying, hey, on actual innocence, we're going to let you go now and you're free of these charges. You know, it's such an uplifting. It's just that weight of the world is off your shoulders because now you know that the world has can open up for you because there's so many limitations of being a convicted felon that you cannot do or have. But now being an exonerated or, you know, exonerated individual, the world is open up. And, and, you know, like I said, during my statement, you know, the last name, I, I am my, my family's namesake. I am the last tap. But at least we can walk away knowing that this name is clean. And that meant the world to me that my father passed while I was inside. He never got the ability to see me be free. He got to see me being locked up in maximum security, you know, here in Idaho. And he had to come and see me as he got older and sicker. And my mom traveled, you know, for 20 years to come visit me in the penitentiaries, you know, every every once a month for six months. And then I wouldn't see my mom again for six months. But at least now she has the ability to see me every day if, if we, you know, have that opportunity. So being, you know, taking a deal again, it's amazing because you still have that opportunity to come home. But again, being exonerated, now you know that. Everybody knows what you knew in your heart for all those years that you were actually innocent. That means the world to any individual. Well, I just want to thank you for sharing your your story with us and, and talking about the realities of kind of what you faced. Because unless you've been in that situation, I, I think many of us don't know and will never know what it's really like. So thank you for that. Thank you. And Ms. Herf, uh, so Mr. Taps was exonerated based on uh DNA testing. And in 2021, the Arizona legislature passed SB 1469, which sets up procedures by which an inmate can seek forensic examination of items that were not tested at the time of trial because maybe technology wasn't available at that time. How has this impacted post-conviction work and exonerations here in Arizona? Time will tell. It's it's a new statute, um, and it really builds on the post-conviction DNA testing statute. So Arizona in 2002, when DNA testing, you know, was being used in DNA evidence, I should say, it was being used in criminal cases more regularly. Arizona was one of many states in in this country. And now I believe every state in the U.S. has what we call a post-conviction DNA testing statute. So it is a legal avenue for a defendant to ask the court to get access to the evidence from the original offense and do DNA analysis on that evidence 
in an effort to prove that, you know, this defendant was not there and somebody else's DNA very likely can be on the item and would identify the, the true assailant. And then, you know, the defendant's conviction could be overturned or at least, you know, entitled to a new trial. So we, Arizona has had a post-conviction DNA testing statute for, you know, 20 years. Arizona has had three DNA exonerees uh, or exoneration cases occur. Um, and what the new statute does is a couple of things. One, there have been advancements in technology, in science, in other forensic disciplines outside of DNA. And not every case has this pivotal DNA evidence that will show us who committed the crime or who did not. And, and like DNA, the government, the state crime labs, the city crime labs, you know, the federal system has different databases that they use as crime solving tools. So DNA and the CODIS database that was created in night started in 1998, which obviously has grown quite a bit since then is one. But prior to that, there were fingerprint databases and there are firearms comparison databases. And what the, the new statute does in Arizona is two things. It gives an individual, a defendant, an opportunity in post-conviction to seek forensic analysis of evidence beyond DNA when there have been new scientific developments that are no longer or that were not in existence at the time of trial. And the second thing it does is allow for an avenue for a defendant to ask the court to access, again, access evidence that could be firearms evidence or latent print evidence that existed and was collected in the original you know, in investigation that did not link the defendant to the crime. And could that evidence now be uploaded into one of the databases? And could we get a potential latent print, quote, match, unquote, um, or firearms comparison, you know, matching a bullet or a gun to, you know, an entirely different um, defendant or a different case that might be able to support a person's, you know, claim of, of innocence. And so, so what about cases where the technology was available, but the testing wasn't done? Do these, do those individuals have an opportunity for relief? And what does that look like? In DNA cases, we have we have seen cases and we have motioned the court to do DNA testing even after DNA testing existed. So, for example, a 2005 case, DNA testing was widely used at that point and certain items in the case weren't tested because the government, you know, they, they believed they had enough evidence with with other information. And in those in, in some cases that the Justice Project has received when there's been questions about that other evidence, we have returned the court and asked for DNA testing, even though it was in existence at the time of trial. I will say that in some of those cases, we have received opposition from the state saying they could have tested it back, you know, in 2005 and they didn't. However, I think in each of these cases, the court just allowed the DNA testing to occur. Time will tell with this new statute. You know, I, I think one thing that lawyers and judges are not um, the most knowledgeable on is science and is forensic testing and are the different methods of analysis that are available and are the updates in the better technology, even in fingerprint scanning that is used now that wasn't used, you know, even 10 or 15 years ago. And so even though the actual process of collecting a latent print and, you know, doing the, the points of comparison 
that's been in existence for, you know, probably hundreds or a hundred or so years. But the technology that is used to get more specific with the evidence and try to get better outcomes continues to advance. And so, you know, it's going to be a lawyer's duty to be aware of that and to talk to experts and to talk to people who work at crime labs to understand, you know, the advancements that have been made so they can present that to a court and say, here's why this has advanced. And here's, you know, what what we might be able to find out today that wasn't, you know, possible 10, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, Mr. Tapp, I um, want us to talk a bit about compensation. Uh, I think there's a number of people who believe once someone is uh, exonerated, then they'll be compensated for all those years in prison. And one of the problems with pleas to freedom is uh, you're probably not going to be compensated or access, have compensation accessible for you. Uh, but even for people who are exonerated, there are a number of states that don't compensate people who have been proven in the court to have been innocent and wrongfully convicted. In 2021, however, the governor of Idaho, Brad Little, signed the Wrongful Conviction Act, which does provide state compensation for the wrongfully convicted in Idaho. Um, This act made Idaho the 36th state to adopt a wrongful conviction compensation law. So I wonder if you could discuss the the process for getting this compensation bill passed into law and what kind of an impact it could have. The compensation law took us two years. We first did it right after uh, I got traction because again, you know, the state knew my case and they you know, used me as the forefront of, uh, of it. So in, in 2020, we went in front of legislation uh, with a representative, his name was Doug Ricks uh, and Barbara E. Hart and the Senator D- uh, Dave Lent. So we went and it was truly amazing. I went and gave testimony. There was another exonerated individual here, uh, here in Idaho. He came and, and, and uh, he's been off out of prison for 17 years now. He was on death row for 18 years and he's been home for 17 years and he's not received a dime. So we were able, again, we were able to go in front and and talk to legislation in in both houses. And it was truly amazing. You know, in 2020, the, the, the Senate, all the Senate stood up and gave me a standing ovation because I was in the audience. And it was one of the most highlights of my thing. And then, you know, we passed unanimously through the house and through the Senate. And then that year, you know, Mr. Little, he vetoed the bill because there was a lot of questions that were still he had problems with with the compensation bill. So, again, we went back to the drawing board the next year, did the same thing. But during this time, I was actually able to get a meeting with with Governor Little. So he sat down and was able to talk to me. So I got to tell him, explain to him how important it is for an individual who's been wrongfully convicted to come home and get, you know, some money. Because, again, you, you come home like for being, you know, an individual that took a deal that came home the first time I had $3,000 when I was released from prison that people started a GoFundMe account. And that's all I had to my name, no state agencies. Because again, when you're, when I took the deal, I'm not on parole. So I don't get all the state agencies to help me. So I, that 3000 bucks bought me my first little piece of car, bought me some clothes and, and it got me, you know, my foot, you know, my foot in the door for, I could go find me a real job and then put moving forward. But now, you know, every individual here in the state of Idaho that once they've been wrongfully convicted and released from prison, now they have the ability to have this money. Because, again, there is so much, you know, that changes in the world for people. You know, the cost of living has gone up tremendously. And, you know, 
when I was convicted in 1997 and then released in 2017, you know, I, I could buy, a, you know, for five bucks, buy half a tank of gas, a pack of cigarettes and a soda. And I was perfectly fine. Now you fast forward 20 years, that five bucks barely gets you, you know, a couple gallons of gas. And you think about buying a pack of cigarettes for five bucks. Was it hysterical? So again, the world has changed so much. So it now for uh, Charles Fain is the other individual here in Idaho. So now Charles is 73 years old. He had a 14 hour uh, hour work week at a, at a, like an Amazon kind of packaging place. But now Charles, because of this compensation bill, he's 73 years old. He never has to worry about money another day in his life. And he can retire and live life to the fullest. And that means more to me than anything else in this world, because I was able to make that happen because I continue to push forward. And, and during this time, I was also able to help Oregon I went over to a neighboring state and pushed forward and helped get Oregon's compensation bill passed. Again, it took us two years there, but I was able to help Oregon get their compensation bill passed for the wrongly convicted. So again, it's been truly tremendous. And now all these individuals will have a little bit of financial help that they've always needed all this time, but they've never had this opportunity. And that means more to all of us, you know, individuals than anything else that we can show that we can start being independent on our own. And that means a lot. Chris, congratulations. That is great work. Um, I just wanted to add that Arizona is now one of the minority of states that does not have a compensation bill. It is something that the Arizona Justice Project has been trying to advance for years, and we have yet to have success. But hopefully one day Arizona will follow in the success that you have seen in other states. Thank you. And so I kind of just wrapping things up, I have a closing question for, for all of you. Despite all of the work that the Arizona Justice Project and other similar organizations are doing, between 2 and 10% of convicted individuals in U.S. prisons are innocent. So what can lawyers, academics, policymakers, what can we all do to help prevent and reverse wrongful convictions? And what do you see on the horizon moving forward? So... As I mentioned earlier, you know, once we get to post-conviction proceedings, it's really hard to undo a wrongful conviction. So one thing that I would like to see is to have more resources at the trial phase. You know, that is when we have the best ability to prevent wrongful convictions, in my opinion. At least in theory, at that phase, the defendant is presumed innocent and the burden is on the state. And that burden gets reversed once a conviction becomes final. The state has lots of resources to investigate crimes. Chris can talk about the power of the state that was up against him when he was, you know, facing a possible conviction. And it's just, it's not balanced in our current system. Um, the defense does not have enough resources. And our system just isn't fair. You know, people with money generally don't get wrongfully convicted. And most people that we help our, you know, indigent defendants who were at the mercy of the system in terms of providing them resources at the time of trial. Public defenders do amazing work, but they are understaffed and underfunded, um, as are, you know, many of the private lawyers who take on these cases at the trial phase. So I really think we need to put more efforts into preventing wrongful convictions before they happen by pouring resources into you know, the other side of our adversarial system, as Lizzie mentioned, that is how our system is supposed to work. We're supposed to have two sides with great representation that can, you know, show up in court and advocate well on both sides. And unfortunately, that is not always what criminal trials look like. For me, first and foremost, you know, for the students who are going to be listening, you know, that you probably share with these students and also with your clients, 
you know, for the Arizona system department is please continue to tell your clients and your students never give up the fight. That is probably one of the hardest things in the world for people to understand. But for someone that's been in my position, that's been wrongfully convicted inside, you know, you, you lose faith, you lose hope, you lose trust in the system that's supposed to protect you, supposed to one who keeps you safe and keeps you well, but never ever lose faith in yourself and always know that you know the truth inside you. And that's one of the most important things. And again, it's people who other exonerees and other people who's taken deals to come home, it's, they have to continue to stand up and fight the system that's been so wrong for so many years. And that's what they need to do is just continue to show that they can fight. And that will be the biggest thing. I think in what we see on the horizon moving forward has been something that has slowly gained a little more traction, which is inside the prosecution agencies kind of dotted all over the country, we see these newly created uh, conviction integrity units. And they're called different things in different states, um, or not just in different states, but in different counties or districts. And it's something that's purely up to the elected prosecutor to decide if this is a priority or not. But I do think we have a new generation of students that are becoming prosecutors and defense lawyers, but prosecutors who have now grown up in a world where they're seeing Chris Tapp's story on Dateline on a Friday night, where they're exposed on a regular basis to the fact that wrongful convictions do occur. And, and so I am hopeful that we do see more conviction integrity units that really are, are resourced and will dig in because we have a couple of new ones here in Arizona and we've been able to work out, you know, specifically actually in sentencing matters to avoid litigation and work out a path, a, you know, a fair and just sentencing kind of correction path to some of our manifest injustice clients, which might possibly not have been able um, to occur without their assistance. And so I think you know, I'm hopeful that on the horizon moving forward on this tail end post-conviction part of the system that we do see more, you know, conviction integrity and it's in prosecuting agencies acknowledging and, and prioritizing the need to, to correct some of these injustices that, you know, occurred decades ago. Well, thank you everyone. Uh, that brings us to the end of our time today. Uh, so we definitely want to thank our guests for a terrific discussion. Uh, we are joined today by Lindsay Herf, the Executive Director of the Arizona Justice Project, Karen Smith, Senior Litigation Counsel for the Arizona Justice Project, and exoneree Chris Tapp, who served 20 years in prison in Idaho for a crime he did not commit. Thank you all for this important discussion. And thank you also to my co-host Ashley Otto and our producer Amina Keshchen-Kamel. This uh, podcast is a service of the Academy for Justice Arizona State University Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. I am Valina Beatty and this has been Measured Justice. Mm -hmm.